Good morning, everybody. It's awesome to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And uh, man, it's good to be back. It's good to be home. I've been out the last few weeks uh, with just taking some vacation. Uh, my family and I uh, went to Toledo, Ohio for a couple weeks. You all went there for summer vacation too, right? Who doesn't go to Toledo? And uh, I mean, it's pretty great actually in the summer. We went there and then we came home and our oldest got her driver's license and uh, She's still alive. The car is still working. We're good uh, so far on that. And then last week I was in Denver uh, visiting my, uh, my parents, especially my dad. Uh, my dad just finished week five out of seven of treatment for tongue cancer. And so I was there with him for the week, taking him to appointments, hanging out with him, uh, helping him uh, through stuff. We actually watched church online uh, last week. I watched uh, Josh preach and took communion. My dad uh, got us set up with uh, club crackers for communion. And I had him like, what are we doing with this unleavened matzah cracker at church? Like, we got to switch to club crackers. This is unbelievable. It's the most delicious communion I've ever had. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was good to kind of follow along that way. Um, and any prayers that you would have for my dad and, and our family as he goes through that. He's doing well, it's, you know, but it's cancer and it's tough. So um, anyway, we're in this series called We Want a King, where we're looking at First and Second Samuel and a little bit of uh, First Kings. Uh, we'll look at that. And this, this passage today has reminded me of some of my own morbid habits that I have. I've got a kind of morbid streak where I like to focus on how bad it could go. Anybody else like that? Uh, you, you like to focus on the bad? Like, like before we were preparing to plant this church, I would listen to lots of different talks and resources and all different things on how to start a church, how to lead a church, how to start stuff, blah, blah, blah. And I shared almost none of it with Molly, my wife. She just wasn't that interested in it. But the things I would make her listen to were the stories of people burning out and the stories of flame out and failure and destruction. I'd go, you got to listen to this. She'd go, why are we listening to this, right? And it was, I guess, my way of going, how do we avoid that, right? And so that pattern continued when I started the church. And so now on my computer, I have a folder. The folder's called Beware. Beware. And what it is, is it's got documents in it where every time a pastor that I hear about falls, blows it, has to resign or is fired, you know, the pastor will put out a statement, where the church will put out a statement, I copy that into a document and I put it in my folder, beware. About once a year, I go through it and I read them. Isn't that just sick? What's wrong with me? But it's, but it's actually what it's trying to do is go, okay, listen, here's how, there's two ways to learn from mistakes. You can learn from other people's mistakes or you can learn from your own. And it's my way of going, I'd like to learn from other people's mistakes, right? We tell our kids, like, there's a dumb tax, someone's gonna pay it. Why don't you learn from the people who've already paid the dumb tax instead of you paying your own dumb tax, right? Don't be dumb. Learn from other dumb people, right? And so that's what we're going to try to do today is learn from other people's mistakes. Now, the, the danger in, in seeing other people's mistakes is you can get a little bit voyeuristic about it and a little bit removed from it, right? Like you can, right, like one of the most popular podcasts, at least in the Christian subculture of the last few years, was the rise and fall of Mars Hill. If you don't know anything about it, don't worry. But for those of you that listen, some of you listen because you went, oh, this is interesting. This relates to one, a story that I'm familiar with. I want to learn some stuff from this. Other people listened to it because it sounded like watching a car crash, right? I, I, there's whole YouTube channels where you can just watch endless hours of fail videos, Millions and millions of videos of people just failing. 
They're so fun, right? And that's the whole problem, is they're so fun. And so, so we want to try to learn from mistakes without going, oh, I'm glad I'm not like those idiots. I'm glad I'm not like this guy. Uh, that's what we want to try to do. So this series, We Want a King, is, is really built around this idea that we realize in the human heart is this longing for leadership, this longing to be led, this longing to, to have uh, somebody in front of us taking us somewhere. That's in us, right? And, and, and the nation of Israel had that with the Lord, and they said, nah, we don't really want that. We want a king like all the other nations have. And the same thing is true of us. This is why over and over, year after year after year, we keep thinking, oh, this is the politician that'll do it. This is the party. Oh, this is the thing. How's that going? How's that going? It still stinks. It always stinks. And listen, when we put our hope in politics, when we put our hope in politicians and in parties, and in all, we're fools because it never works out. And part of the point of this series is to say there's this thing in the heart of the people of God that says, if only we could have a leader like this. And we get the leader, and it's like, eh, not so much. What we need is the Lord. So that's what we're doing. So uh, right now we're focused on Saul. In a couple weeks, we'll turn our attention to David. We'll look at his life. Then we'll look at King Solomon, these, the three first kings of the nation of Israel. And through it, we'll learn from their lessons. Uh, we'll learn from their lives. But through it all, hopefully what we'll do is be pointed to go, you know what? Human kings, human politicians, human leaders, pastors, governors, CEOs, executive directors, <laughs> our hope's not in them. Our hope's in the Lord. That's what we're going to try to do. The, the desire for that uh, king, we see it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The people said we wanted a king, and Samuel said, are you sure you want that? And they said, yeah, we really do. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And the Lord says to Samuel, hey, Samuel, don't get mad. It's not you, it's me. They're not mad at you, they're mad at me. Now, what was the Lord? The Lord was the one who went out and fought all their battles. This is the people who were slaves in Egypt, who were rescued out of Egypt into a promised land where God over and over and over fought their battles. They go, nah, we don't want that. We want a king like all the other nations. And so that's what they get. And they get King Saul. Now, chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel really describe Saul's uh, hesitancy. Right, and Arnold did a great job teaching through this, that Arnold, uh, that, not that Arnold, but that, well, Arnold too, me too, and Saul, that we're all mixed bags. And Saul wasn't angling to be king. He was actually kind of hiding in the luggage and looking for his donkey and, you know, but ends up, you know, the people end up picking him king. He's head and shoulders above everybody and he's not a terrible guy and it seems like there's some real promise. But then at the end of chapter 10, there's this question. People go, well, but can Saul save? And then we get to chapter 11 and in chapter 11, you realize the answer to that is yes, because Nahash, the Ammonite, this king, uh, this enemy uh, nation comes up against the nation of Israel and Saul is the one who steps up to crush Nahash. Now think about this. Maybe you don't realize this. Do you know what the word Nahash means in Hebrew? Nahash is the king of the Ammonites. Do you know what his name means? Serpent. Can Saul save? Well, the serpent comes and Saul crushes the serpent. Saul crushes Nahash. Maybe there's some hope. Maybe this king is the king we've been waiting for. Maybe this king is like the new Adam that's going to lead us into some kind of new, better future. Because Saul decisively defeats 
Nahash, the serpent, the Ammonite. And so it seems at the end of chapter 11, this is going great. Saul's on the rise. He's winning. He's doing awesome. And then we get to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, Samuel says, hey, I know everything's going well, but I still need to tell you how bad you're going to hate it when you have a king. Samuel just keeps beating this drum. And that brings us to today. And today we're looking at chapters 13 and 14. So we just read a little bit from 13. We're actually covering two chapters. And what I want to try to do in this is to sort of tell the story of, of what happens in these chapters, and then and pull out some lessons from it and, and apply it uh, to us. Uh, in order to do that, we've got to go back into chapter 12, though. And in chapter 12, here's part of the warning that, that uh, Samuel, who's the prophet, he, he gives to the people. He says in chapter 12, verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, If both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Here's what Samuel's saying. Even your king is under the authority of Yahweh. Your king doesn't get to do whatever he wants. He has to fear the Lord, serve him, obey him, not rebel against his commandment. And if you do that, it's going to go great. If you don't, it won't. He says a similar thing at the end of chapter 12. He says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So what I want to do, like I said, is just go through this story. There'll be parts where we slow down and camp. There are other parts where I'll just scroll through and it'll make some of you real nervous, like we're skipping stuff. And I'll tell you what's in there. Uh, but the reality is it's two chapters. It's just a lot. And we want to get through it and then try to pull out Uh, some lessons. So that's what we're going to do. So let's pray. Um, Father, would you come now? Would you speak to us and help us to know your heart? Help us to know our hearts. Help us to learn whether our instinct is to act foolishly or faithfully. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This story really is is a set of contrasts. We have chapter 13 and chapter 14, and the contrast is really between Uh, Saul and Jonathan, and it's between foolishness and failure, or I'm sorry, foolishness and faith. That's what it's about. And so here's an outline of of how this text works, is uh, both chapters start with the success of Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of Saul, and he has some big military successes. We'll look at those. So that's how it begins. And then in chapter 13, Israel's terrified. In chapter 14, Israel's victorious. But then both chapters have then the folly of Saul, which leads to the distress of Israel. And so this chapter's designed, these chapters are both designed to contrast, to say, okay, you thought Saul was your guy. Look at chapter 11. He's crushing the head of the snake. Maybe this is the new Adam. Then you read chapters 13 and 14, you go, uh, maybe not. So that's what we're going to try to look at. So uh, if you have your Bible, you can uh, open it. You can also follow along with uh, my notes there on the screen. The first thing just to pay attention to is that the word Saul literally means asked for. So the nation of Israel sawed a king, and they got Saul. Isn't that interesting? 
So even Saul just himself represents it. This is what you asked for. And so he's king. Uh, he's uh, choosing an army. He's doing all this. And it says in chapter 13, verse 3, that Jonathan, his son, defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. So that's his success. Uh, Jonathan leads a battle. Uh, they celebrate this. But it leads to Israel being really terrified. The Philistines have this overwhelming force. It tells us uh, in verse 5 that they had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand. This terrifies everybody. And so it says in verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. If you have your Bible, circle hard-pressed. We're going to come back to that phrase in a little bit. That's going to be key in a moment. The people were hard-pressed, and so they hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns, everything the author can think of. He's going, they were just running for the hills. They were hiding everywhere. They're afraid. So, uh, I'm sorry, Jonathan has the success. Israel is terrified. And then we see the folly of Saul. It says he, that's Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Samuel had told him, hey, here's what I want you to do is wait, when you get there, wait for seven days. At the end of the seven days, I'm going to offer a sacrifice and then you can go to battle. That's what the Lord's commanding, right? And throughout this whole story, Samuel is the prophet. He's the voice of God. He's not God, but he's the voice of God. He's carrying the words of God. And he had told him, wait until I show up to offer the sacrifice. And it says, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. Just put yourself in Saul's shoes for a second. All right, my son just did this kick butt thing against the Philistines, and then they mounted up a huge force. They have a technological advantage. They have a numerical advantage. My people are hiding in toilets and caves and tombs. They are all terrified. Samuel's not here. Come on, man, where are you? You said seven days. The clock's ticking. He's checking his phone every few minutes. Is he here? Is he here? Is he here? Right, he's got the find my Samuel. He can't find him. Samuel's out of range. He's not there. It's like, where is this guy? This is all falling apart. What do I do? So, it's a key word, so. Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. My translation of this is, I got this. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Think about this. Samuel didn't come on day eight. He just came later on day seven. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Which sounds a lot like what God says to Adam in Genesis 3. When he encountered the serpent, what what have you done? What did you do? And Adam, in that story, if you've ever read it, you realize what Adam does is he shifts the blame everywhere. Well, it's the wife, the the woman that you gave me, God. It's kind of what Saul does here. When I saw that the people were scattering for me and you didn't come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered a big mash, I said, now they're going to come against me. I haven't sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. I had to do it. And I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to him, you have done foolishly. In Hebrew, this is just one word, fool. Fool! Why is he a fool? I mean, it seems like he's wise, right? Like the army's scattering, Samuel's late. We got to do something. He didn't just charge in the battle, he at least did the sacrifice to God. Why, why is he a fool? Well, Psalm 14:1 is an indication. Psalm 14:1 tells us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
And that's what Saul does here. He acts like there's no God. He acts like, I got this. He acts like, I'm going to be fine. And so Samuel says to him, you have not kept the command of the Lord. Remember what we talked about last chapter? If you listen, if you obey, if you keep the command, it'll go well with you. You and the king, you haven't done it. You didn't keep the command of the Lord, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. That means a man after God's own choosing, not the one they asked for, but the one God picks. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. This doesn't mean that Saul's reign is over. It just means that when Saul dies, the the kingdom's going to go to a new family. It's not going to pass down through his family which is really tragic when you look at this story and you see how heroic Jonathan actually is. He'd be a great king. But because Saul didn't keep the command, because Saul took it into his own hands, because Saul said, I got this, the kingdom's going to pass him by. Here's one of the most tragic verses, verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. You go, what's tragic about that? Here's what's tragic about that. What is Samuel in this story? He's the voice of God. And what this is saying is Samuel got up and left. Saul got up with all his people and he left. They went opposite directions. They didn't interact anymore. God's out of the picture. How long could you go without God? This is the opposite of, of, of what Moses does in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 33, there's this place where God says, you know what, I'm so fed up with you people. Don't you feel like if you were God, you'd feel like that a lot? You know, I'm so fed up with you guys. I mean, come on. So here's what God says in Exodus 33. He goes, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer all your enemies. I'm going to get you into the promised land. It's flowing with milk and honey. You're absolutely going to love it. I'm just not going with you. And Moses says, over my dead body, then I'm not going. God, if you're not going, I'm not going. Yeah, but my... my Will you get everything you want? No, God, I want you. Is that in your heart somewhere? That you're not you're not in this thing for all the other stuff God could give you, but you're in it because you want him? You get this indication from Saul, yeah, he kind of wants God a little bit, enough, a little bit, I'll make a sacrifice. But you know, in the words of God, when the life of God goes away in the person of Samuel, it's like, well, off to battle. It's a foolish heart. It acts like there's no God. It leads to the distress of Israel. There's raiders coming out of the camp. Obviously, everyone hates raiders. Um, (laughs) uh, We see at the end of the chapter, uh, there's a technological problem because there's no blacksmith in Israel. The, The Philistines have a monopoly on making tools and weapons, and so it just leads to a lot of disaster. So Jonathan's courageous and successful. Israel's terrified. Saul is foolish, and it leads to distress in Israel. We see the same pattern then in chapter 14. Look at this. One day, the son of Saul, Jonathan, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. Verse 4, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. Now this word, just so you know this, this word crag in Hebrew, it means tooth. It's literally what it is. There was a tooth on one side and a tooth on the other. The name of the one was Bozes, which means slippery. 
The name of the other was Thorny. They had a very literal approach to naming stuff. Right? There's one hill. It's slippery. One is thorny. It says the one crag rose on the north of Michmash, the other on the south in front of Geba. If you, if you were reading this in Hebrew, what you'd imagine is that Jonathan is going down into the jaws of death. This is his courage. This is what he's facing. This is the difficulty in front of him. In order to, not only is he vastly outnumbered, not only does he have no technological strength compared to these other guys, but he's got to go through the jaws, the slippery, thorny jaws of death. And here's what he says in verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that perhaps the Lord will work for us. Other translations translate that as perhaps. He's not certain. He didn't know for sure. This isn't a lock. He just goes, it might be. Maybe God will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so he and the armor bearer, they develop this plan. And what they do is, is they show themselves to the people in the camp, and they essentially say, all right, here's what happens. If, if we show ourselves and the people in the camp say, hey, come over here, then we'll go. And that means the Lord has given us into their hands, and we're going to slaughter them. And so they show them, and uh, they, they show themselves, and they hear from Literally what they say is like, come here, let us show you something. I mean, guys haven't changed in thousands of years, right? Like, come here, let me show you what it's like, right? That's the kind of thing they got. And they go, all right, that means, and they, off they go, and they actually uh, slaughter a number of people. They fall before Jonathan, his armor bearer finishes them off. They kill about 20 people. And now there's panic, not in the Israelite camp, but in the Philistine camp. There's great success. Israel's victorious. The people of, uh, Phil, uh, of the Philistines are dispersing. They're confused. They start killing each other. They start uh, turning their swords on each other. There's this great Israel victory. And so it says in verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. This isn't that Jonathan saved Israel. This is the Lord did it. He saved them that day. That's Jonathan's courageous, successful, victorious thing, and it's followed right away by the folly of Saul. Notice even just the contrast, that day, that day. The Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day because Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Remember I told you earlier to circle hard-pressed? And in chapter 13, the people of Israel are hard-pressed because the Philistines are an overwhelming force against them. In chapter 14, the people of Israel are hard-pressed because their king's a fool. And he makes it about himself until I'm avenged. And so he, he says, here's what here's will motivate everybody, is if I tell him, hey, none of you can eat until we totally win and my name's vindicated. How many think that's going to motivate the troops? So the Lord's working, Saul's working kind of against him, maybe without even knowing it, putting this oath on the people. None of them taste food. Jonathan hadn't heard about the oath, however. And so people are walking through the forest. There's all this fresh honey there. They all avoid it. Uh, Jonathan sticks his staff in it and eats some of it, right? Have you ever had fresh honeycomb? I mean, goodness gracious, how would you not have that? And so Jonathan has some and it makes his eyes bright. He gets energy. He gets strength. All the people are like, Jonathan, what are you doing? This is your dad put this thing. No one can eat anything. And here's basically what he says. I think this is kind of fun in verse 29. Then Jonathan said, my father's a moron. Um, Actually, he said, my father has troubled the land. He's like, 
yeah, I mean, everybody should be eating. And they don't eat. And so then when they finally do win the battle, they're so starved that they go in and they slaughter all the animals and they start eating them with all the blood in it, which is the thing that Israel was not supposed to do. It just creates all this chaos and all this mess. So what do we make of this? There's more that you could look at. There's so much in this story that I think is interesting. But, but let's just step back and go, what do we learn from this? Here's the thing that's so striking to me is both Jonathan and Saul are acting. They're taking action. They're doing. Right? This is not a story of, well, Jonathan was courageous and did something and Saul didn't. No, they're both taking action. Right? Saul is taking action. All these people are leaving. Samuel's not here. I'll, I'll do it. Jonathan's taking action. Yeah, the army's huge, and yeah, the odds are against us, but come, let's go. And he takes action. I, I frankly love the bias for action. I know as a leader, right, when I kind of just take off my pastor hat and put on a leader hat, I'm looking for people with a bias for action. Like, I would way rather help, help coach and encourage and, and navigate somebody who's moving somewhere than trying to crack a whip to get someone moving. So this is great. I mean, they, they're moving. They got a bias for action. But, but the question is, what animates their action? And for you and for me. Like, listen, I, I don't meet anyone in this church who's like, God, you know, how, how you doing? What are you, what are you up to? Whew. Nothing. I can't figure out anything to do. If you're here, come, come say hi to me. It'll take a little work till you get up to me, but, but come say hi. You know, I, I just don't think those people exist. I meet hundreds of you who say, I, I go, how you doing? You go, whew, man, we're busy. I thought this summer was going to be relaxed, but man, whew, and that school's about to start, man, I'm busy. And I, it, here's, here's the thing, you know what? Okay, great. Here, here's what I want for me and for our family. I want us to have busy lives because it means we're doing something, but I don't want a busy heart because that means I'm anxious and I'm striving and I'm doing a lot without the strength of the Lord. Do you get the difference? And, and so I think that's what this story is. It's a case study of two people taking action animated by totally different things. One is foolishness, the other one's faith. The first one is, is foolishness. So this is option one. This is Saul. I got this. I got this. Now, Saul seems like he cares about faithfulness, right? He's making the sacrifices. He wants God involved in the battle. He's kind of trying to wait for Samuel. He's hanging out with the priest. He's trying to seek God's direction, right? This reminds me of a lot of people who hang around church, right? You got the all of life is all for Jesus t-shirt. You text the pastor from time to time. You're trying, you know, to be a good person, when life really heats up and it gets tough, you're like, oh, now I pray. That's kind of Saul. How often is that our approach, by the way? We're kind of around the edges of stuff. We look. Like, people don't know any better. They go, oh, yeah, he's a great guy. She's a, man, she's a faithful Christian. And yet you go, eh, really? Are you? Are we? Am I? Because the the instinct in Saul is, I got this. One commentator said this, when the chips were down, Saul thought kingship could function on its own. I just thought, let, let's replace the word kingship. When the chips are down, 
marriage could function on its own. When the chips are down, my career could function on its own. When the chips are down, Luke could function on his own. That's foolish. It's, at, first, at first in my notes I wrote, I got this, self-sufficient. But I went, no, 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 it's foolish. And yeah, that works better, F and F, foolishness and faith. That's better alliteration, right? So that's part of it. But, but the reality is, self-sufficiency is foolish. It's acting like there's no God. And I understand this. I, I sympathize with Saul. I mean, I sympathize because he doesn't seem that bad, does he? I mean, you just think about this story. Some of what's going on is like, he's like, his problem is he's not sacrificing exactly the right way. Well, the next guy is going to manipulate someone into sex who's not his wife and then murder her husband. So I go, is Saul that bad? Well, no, he's not that bad. But you know what he is? He's just like Adam. He's just like you. He's just like me. That's our tendency. I got this. The other option is God's got this. That's Jonathan. God's got this. This is the the option of faith. Now, there's a definition I've written down here that's just my definition of faith from this chapter. There's lots of good definitions of faith, but here's one that I see, especially in in chapter 14, verse 6. Here's a definition of faith. Faith is confidence based on God's character. It's not faith in yourself. It's not faith in faith. It's confidence based on God's character. It's confidence, not certainty, based on God's character, not circumstances. That's the kind of faith that we see here in chapter 14, verse 6. If you have your Bible, look again at this. This is what we see in Jonathan. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go. We're going to act. We're going to do something. We got this bias of action. Here we go. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Perhaps. All right, this reminds me of one of my favorite movie quotes. So you're telling me I've got a chance. All right, some of you know that. Lloyd Christmas is with the girl that's outclassed him. Is there any chance of a guy, girl like you and a guy like me getting together, he asks. And she says, ah, maybe one in a million. So you're telling me I got a chance. All right, that's more like what faith is. We goof this up all the time. We think faith is certainty. We think faith is I'm 100% positive. And a lot of times people try to use faith against them, like the reason that you're sick and the reason you're not doing this and the reason this isn't going, you don't have enough faith. And we feel all this crushing weight of, do I have enough faith? And what it, what we, the, the way we hear it is, do I have enough certainty? Jonathan doesn't have certainty. Perhaps, maybe, I think he might. Faith isn't certainty. Faith isn't dictating to God. Faith is acknowledging that you don't know everything and acknowledging that God might have other plans in mind. That's okay. That's part of faith. Did God give you his secret decree book? No. He gave you a book of his character, so you act on that, but you don't know everything that's in the heart of God. So it's confidence. It's not certainty. And it's based on God's character, not circumstances. The circumstances are terrible. The army's overmatched. They don't have weapons. The people are running and hiding. There's raiders on the loose. Jonathan's circumstances are terrible. And yet look at his word. There's clear conviction about God. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. My confidence isn't in me. It's in him. God's got this. God is the kind of person who could take care of this. 
And he recognizes God's normal manner of working. He's saying, you know what? God doesn't need something big. Look, look at it. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is up to the Lord. This is what he's doing. And we're going to act if we sense that God is in it. Okay, God's in it. Let's go. And so here's, here's the thing, friends. You and I, we are action takers. Right? And this is something I love about this church. I love that we're taking action. We're doing stuff. We don't wait for everything. But the question is, what's driving your action? And so, so I, I've just kind of been thinking through, okay, what are some indications? How do you test this and go, okay, I'm, I'm acting, I'm busy, I'm doing a lot. H- how do I know? What are some signs that I... That I'm doing, I got this, or that I'm doing, God's got this? First question I'd ask is, are you more like a duck or like a hawk? Because a duck on the water looks really calm. They're just kind of cruising along there. But underneath the water, a hawk also looks very calm, but it just soars, and it uses the heat and it uses the wind, and it rises, and it rises. And there's minor little tweaks in its wings, but it's not working very hard. What's going on in your heart? Yeah, you're, you're, you're active, but are you active as a duck? Are you active as a hawk? What's carrying you? Is there churn in your heart? Is there churn in your stomach? Like, do you feel physically the effect of stress and pressure because I got this and it's on me and I got to fix it and I got to do it and I got to solve it? You feeling that churn? A lot of times for me, that churn shows up about three o'clock in the morning after I use the restroom and I try to go back to bed. And I can tell a lot about what's going on in my heart by whether there's churn or whether there's, God's got this. Another indication is, what are you afraid of? It's striking in this story, Saul seems much more afraid of his circumstances and the people around him than he is of the Lord. What about you? Right? I think that's it. Am I afraid of people or am I fearing God? Jonathan seems like he's fearing the Lord. He's putting it in the Lord's hands. He's thinking about the Lord. Saul is going, well, what about all the people? And what are they thinking? And, and I'm supposed to be head and shoulders. And I'm supposed to be better. And I, uh, 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 uh. Is, that, is that what's going on? Right? We're, we're experiencing this in our family. We just finished our first uh, season of club volleyball. You want to watch churning? Go watch club sports. How many of you have some familiarity with the insanity of club sports? It is insane. And the reason it is insane is because there's a lot of people who are operating out of fear. We got to get on the right club and we got to have the right things and we got to have the best coaching. We got to have the thing. We got to have the best opportunity because my kid's got to get a scholarship and fear, 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 fear. Or you can go, no, no, no. I'm going I'm to try to give my kids a good opportunity. I'm going to try to have them good experiences. But this isn't going to dominate our lives. This is going to pull them out of youth group. This isn't going to become the thing in our life. Which is it? You afraid of people? You afraid of circumstances? Or you go, no, we're, we're fearing the Lord and, and he doesn't need our activity. Another indication I think is, is whether you're praying only in crisis or praying 
like you're breathing. That was one of the first ways I was taught as a new Christian. This is what prayer is. It's you're breathing in God's word, you're breathing out prayer. And just as often as you need breathing, you need prayer. Are you, is that your life of prayer? Or, is, or are you mostly prayerless until it goes bad? And then, quick, God. Now, here's the thing. God's gracious. And God loves you. And most of the time, he's not going to go, too late. He, he loves to bail his people out. But, but what's going to happen in the, in the middle of that is you're going to be living by folly until the Lord uses pain to wake you up instead of just living a life of faith. Here's the last way that maybe you can discern it. Am I living I got this versus God's got this? Is in your action taking, are you experiencing burden or delight? Is it burdensome? Because man, it's all on you and you got to do it. Or is it like, no, this is fun. Yeah, my life's crazy. Yeah, my life's busy. But you know what? This is fun. God's in it. He's opening doors. He's interrupting stuff. And you know, some days I get stressed. But you know what? This is mostly just a blast. Or is it like, man, there's so much on the line. You can't tell the difference very easily between Saul and Jonathan. I think it's partly why I read the story of Saul and kind of go, man, it feels like Saul got gypped. He's not that bad. And he's not that bad. But let me ask you, do you want to be a fool? <laughs> no. Then, then, then consider this, your invitation from, for, from God to say, hey, there might be some areas where you're going, I got this. And he's saying, no, 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 let me take it. That's what we're going to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you um, for the sobering case study of this text. Uh, God, thank you for the invitation to just consider the places that even might seem small where we're, we're acting and we're busy and we're doing stuff, but we're doing it out of our own effort and out of our own strength and out of our own fear and out of our own insecurity and out of our own churn. God, would you send your spirit that we would be more like hawks that float and soar in the power that you supply rather than churning constantly, anxious and afraid and worried. Give us your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.